is how practical do you think Taekwondo is for self-defense? Get a lot of people telling me it's useless in a self-defense situation and what do you think? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. Um, so I think that... Hey everybody and welcome back. Uh, I'm Adrian Byrne and I'm here with uh, Richie Ford, TKD Coach Academy. And uh, today we're going to have a conversation based on some of the questions that you have sent us all over the past week on Instagram and Facebook. Before we jump into it, make sure to give this video a like, or if you're sure you won't like it, you can even hit the thumbs down. It's all, it's all good. It's feedback for us. Uh, and we're going to just jump right in and have a chat through all of the questions that have come at us. And where there was a bit of extra detail needed, we'll try and give that detail here. So our very first one was a nice easy one, Richie. Uh, just which country, in your opinion, leads the ITF in competition? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I threw up a couple of uh, feeders on the Instagram story. Um, so yeah, I think if you just look at the leaderboard from the last couple of campaigns, there's certainly some countries that are up there. You've got um, Ireland, Norway, New Zealand are up there, Argentina. So I think that that's a nice start. Romania have also creeped into that top five recently, I think with the help of um, special technique and power in particular, and also they have uh, really stepped it up in terms of their sparring as well. So yeah, there, there's some countries just kind of breaking it through into that top five, um, but you, you've got that, that same group of countries that are there maybe the last decade or so. I think that's right. Like, that is the critical thing, isn't it? That a country would have to have a system that produces competitors at a high level year after year after year and it's uh, it's not one coach it's not one like small squad of athletes it's talent development it's a system uh, it, it's the tournaments that they're able to run the country it's the size of the organization uh, it's how well supported and funded they are and all those things contribute to making a country uh, a consistent representative in that top five or top ten countries uh, around the world and we have you know of course it evolves over time but we have seen the same nations coming to the top of the world championships for the last number of years and they are the countries that have, for the most part, a big system backing them at home. I think that's huge. Yeah, so definitely you need you need that standard because that's the standard that everybody's aiming to in the country, mm. which then allows people to get to that standard and the people who are looking to get to that standard have to aspire to that and compete with these people who are already at that standard. So I think that that in itself breeds a, a, a good start for people that are looking to get up there in the top countries. I think it's a slightly different question then as well if you ask, uh, you know, within a particular discipline. Because sure. if you look at what Romania have done recently, I mean, they've targeted special technique and power breaking specifically, I suppose. And that has brought them way ahead in the medal tables. And, uh, you know, you get a completely different answer if you ask, well, look, what's the top patterns nation? What's the top yeah. sparring country? And it does flavor things a little bit. And I suppose slightly in that flavor, we got a question. Do you think that the Polish people training in Taekwondo that you've seen in competition are good? And this one's just an easy one. They're always up there, aren't they? Yeah, that's a self-explanatory one. I mean, it, they're one of the countries who really who hit every discipline. Um, yeah. They're sort of they're in the top. Um, they're usually top team, I think. Anyway, so yeah. um, the team disciplines are, are some somewhere where they really thrive. And of course, Poland have been a have been a strong nation since since I've started Taekwondo, at least. Yeah, I think it's a strength and depth thing as well. Like, you know, the system is so strong. There's always, I remember looking years ago at, we'll say, uh, a Polish uh, minus 70 kilos a division. And in Ireland, we might have had six competitors uh, in that division and the same division in Poland and the Polish championships might have been looking at 30 competitors. 
So when the top guy can't make it in a particular year, the system isn't particularly under strength. There's somebody else to step up and fill those shoes. Um, so you've never, you never see a weak Polish team. And I think that's, that's a huge thing year after year after year. They have, they have a nice strong base of competitors. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We got a little question then about uh, how to catch up on all of the training that we've, I'm sure we've all missed out on due to COVID-19. And uh, I suppose that it's particularly, people may have been able to keep their fitness up, may have been able to keep their conditioning up to a degree, but it's very, very difficult to maintain the level, particularly in sparring uh, over that time. Yeah, so like that's something that we've been saying. We've getting this question a lot on our social media with TKD Coach Academy, and uh, the advice that we were given generally was just to try to stay up to scratch with the the physical attributes and the things like that. So your flexibility, your strength work, and all those other areas, and then hopefully that'll just put you in a good position to come back and to hit the ground running once you can begin training again. Yeah, and I suppose one of the biggest things is just make a start. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and I know we said that in terms of the quick answers on Instagram and everything, but the one that the, the, it's like any habit, you've you've kind of lapsed in your habit, and now you need to just reform and re-strengthen and reinforce that habit again. And the first thing you need to do is start with those small uh, incremental gains, do something, and don't try to be where you were four months ago. You know, right away, you've got to you know take that little bit of time to catch up. And thankfully, everybody's in the same boat anyway, so yeah. you're not really behind because everybody's behind. So it's it's unprecedented in recent years. I mean, you'd have to imagine this is what it was like after major major world events like the the World Wars or something when sport basically mm. stopped around the world. But like for us and anyone in our generation, the one before, it's it's unprecedented. So how can you train with weights for taekwondo? And we get this one quite a bit. Yeah, so we actually just um, put the video up with Amit Batra uh, yesterday on our YouTube channel. So if you want to go into an, a real in-depth, I suggest taking a look at that. Amit is, is very, very knowledgeable and has some great advice and great great um, takeaways there on how to use your training, and in particular with strength and conditioning. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, uh, that's there in the podcast, and I think we have it in the YouTube archives as well. Um, but it really is the, the the long answer to the short question um and you know we got a few other variations i think on this question and what we'd have to say with those is uh just to remember that your strength training is a component of your training it's not all of your taekwondo so while it is one thing that you don't want to be weak in that area you don't want to be deficient in terms of your strength training and specifically depending on the discipline that you're focused on or preparing for it should always be a part of your training but it should never be the the principal focus of your training in Taekwondo, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Because like at the end of the day, if it's sparring that you're talking about, it's it's not a, a competition who can bench press the most or who can squat the most. Yeah. The most. To tick that box and have a solid foundation for you to be able to to build your physical attributes upon. For sure, I think it kind of continues here into how many times or how many hours per week should you train if you want to compete internationally in black belt sparring. So I thought that was a nice question. Yeah, so originally on the Instagram story, I, I put up it depends and also with the idea of um, making the best use of time with your training because yeah. although you might train for hours and hours, it might not be the best use of time. Um, so I think that that's one major thing that you got to think about here in this question. Yeah, it, it, time and efficiency are huge. So like there's a few layers in that one. So there's the how much is needed, like what's the minimums? 
and then there's the well you know the uh, how much could you spend so i think reaching a top level in any sport is about how efficiently you use your time how much training can you fit in how well can you recover what's the most that you can do in the time that's allotted to you for training and and you know that's always a case of well more is better until it starts to break you and and, and then more isn't better but the you know the, the the base question you know in in that respect of how many times per week should you train in order to be successful at that level it also kind of brings up kind of the question of specialization so if you're also mm-hmm. trying to prepare for a grading if you're also trying to compete in pattern if you're trying to compete in special technique and power breaking or something like that as well it starts to ramp up very very quickly great point yeah and i remember when i was competing in uh, multiple disciplines it, it was very difficult because you you might be training your patterns at a squad session in the morning and then you go train sparring and, and one begins to kind of take from the other a little bit yeah i think that's one of the reasons why you may see a lot of senior competitors taking it serious just focusing on one discipline because it can be quite difficult to, to juggle a few of those plates there and, and keep them all sharp of course there and the likes of and be more um, like mentally training than physically at times but um, at the same time you still need to be able to come at, at that with uh, the correct approach so generally I think a, a good way to, to have a guide would be five times a week maybe six times a week is what most people at that higher level will be looking at yeah I think you start to get a little bit more specific in your programming once you get to the point where you have those we'll say five or six days and a rest day in the week and you're looking to add more then you really need to look at what's in each of the sessions how those sessions interact with each other how they're layered and uh, and then you know to look and see are you actually dealing with the specifics of what you need you know is the training all for a purpose is it geared around you because you could train infinitely you know you could train as many hours but if it's not actually related to what you need to be improving then those extra hours aren't helping you mm-hmm. definitely um, so our next little question was around a biggest challenge and uh, it was about regaining your technical leg strength so your your leg strength as I, I presume for your kicking ability and pattern and so on and yeah uh, so sorry jump I, I into it for, for the, yeah this one is, is very simple you just need to be able to get back into it and kick more often so you can whether it's your wall exercises whether it's it's uh, isometric holds etc it's just about getting in more um, practices with those kicks and trying to maybe challenge yourself in the areas of holding them for longer maybe going a little bit higher and things like that so it all just comes with that progressive overload I think one of the really important bits that's there is the idea of regaining so if it was there before the challenge is often mm. when you're coming back to it it's being patient enough with yourself to let it take the time it takes and you know to not kind of set yourself goals around well i was here at this point in time so therefore in three weeks six weeks i am going to be there again and you kind of have to just kind of give it the time that it takes and be patient with it to let it develop because training is training it's all yeah, just going to take it's, its funny time for, for, for me it was the same situation after covid when you go back to the gym and all your lifts take a, a big knock and you're like oh whoa, my strength's after taking a massive hit yeah. And all of a sudden, week on week, you're getting PB, 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 and eventually starts to creep up after three, four weeks to, to back where you were. So, um, yeah, it's, it's that idea of, of use it or lose it, but the, thankfully, then it, it's still it's still there if you begin to use it again. Yeah, you haven't. It's it's the difference in athletics between being untrained and detrained. Uh, mm. So you're not untrained. You know, you, you're just detrained. You've you've missed your training for a little while. 
and it's the, the single biggest threat to you at that stage is that you overdo it in your enthusiasm to get back to where you were so being a little bit progressive is is definitely one of the keys um we had a little question here around uh, inclusion of plyometrics outside of your regular taekwondo training and if so how many sessions and this is just absolute love for me i mean uh, uh, plyometrics have to be for me they have to be part of it whether it's included directly into your taekwondo training or there's something that you do supplementary in order to improve your power output and um, i just think that for for most people as long as you've got a prerequisite level of conditioning it's uh, and strength it's time to you know to include a little bit of it I don't think there's any time of the year where you need to be supplementing your Taekwondo training sessions with multiple plyo sessions. I mean, for us, unless you're specifically a spec tech competitor, in which case there will be times when you probably want to focus more of your training around that. I think once a week in, you know, the, the part of your season where you're working on like power development, I think that's, that's kind of where you want to be. I think any more than that, you probably would be better off spending the time on some other aspect of your Taekwondo. Yeah, probably linked. It would link in generally with your strength. If you have a good coach there who who's working on a decent program and who's able to get you from one phase to the next phase, I'm sure that it would be included in that. But I don't think it's necessary to uh, to go all in on plyometrics only. I think it's it's like what we said in the on Instagram. It's being athletic as opposed to just focusing on one particular physical attribute. Yeah, particularly I suppose if you're a multidisciplinary athlete. So if you're um, if if you're only doing special technique or you're only doing power breaking, well, that makes something. But there's very mm-hmm. few Taekwondo people who Definitely. are in their training at least exclusively in one discipline. Other than I would think you start to see people, you know, at, at, a, at a very high level gravitating into being exclusively pattern or exclusively sparring. But it's it takes so much support from a club and from personal coach and your own individual work that it's not super super common that people would be only in one discipline all the time and that it's when you get to that that you really need to look at how you stage your time because yeah and i, I guess it go for it if you if you look at anybody who is training strength and condition i'm sure that if you went in and had a look at a swimming athlete a boxing athlete a football athlete whatever it, the core bulk of their training and strength and condition would probably be similar enough anyway so mm-hmm. like it is about about having those um, broad fundamentals again, like we talked about, and just being able to to have that athleticism as a whole. I think that's a it's a massive start. Kind of general physical preparedness for it. Mm-hmm. We have two questions then coming in. They're both quite similar. So the first one was uh, uh, how to be more flexible, and the second one then was just requesting you're looking for some tips for stretching. Um, and uh, I think you, you'd given some short answers, I think, onto, onto those over the Instagram uh, over the last couple of days. Yeah. It's very simple, isn't it? Become more flexible, stretch more often. And that's the short answer. Yeah, I suppose the thing is, it's looking at all of these things and the, the questions that relate to them are all, well, how do you train to get better at something? And then the principles are always the same. So, you know, um, it's overload at its uh you know at, at its core so you have to go you have to stress the system you have to go beyond what you, what you can currently do in order to create an overload and a stress response in the system and if that overload is progressive over time you will improve or we would call it improvement but you would adapt and it's the adaptation that we're looking for 
Um, if you overdo it, you risk injury, and if you underdo it, you don't get a response. And so, really, when we're talking about stretching and flexibility, it's treating it like any other aspect of fitness, your strength training, your whatever, and saying, hey, am I actually doing, making adjustments to progressively overload the demands of my flexibility? Um, there were some good, uh, I think, tips as well that we had there in terms of um, what type of work, uh, you know, or what type of flexibility training is useful. And it is a little bit discipline specific as well, but in general, when Taekwondo people talk about flexibility, they want to kick higher. You know? That's mostly it, and, and I guess when when you look at it that way, it's important to be able to couple your kicking with your flexibility work and your mobility and control. So the the more that you can couple that, uh, the best, I guess. Um, so of course, I know static stretching gets a bad rap lately because people don't really understand it fully. But like static stretching is uh, it it must be included in your training at some stage, especially if you want to increase that range of motion. So um, something in particular that we can use as kicking athletes would be to maybe hold a kicking position with uh, passively. So maybe that's an external force. Maybe mm. it's a partner. Maybe it's a belt, something. Um, so if you can extend that range, hold it. So that's what's called passive. And then if you can remove that force and hold that range of motion yeah. with control and strength, I think that that's where it's, um, it's, it's going to be very beneficial for us in particular as kicking athletes. Yeah, I mean, you know, the end range strength is such a huge thing for us. So, I mean, if, if you're just, if flexibility is your thing or if it's your challenge, maybe, you know, have a little bit of a read around functional range conditioning or there's a, there's a lot of nice little acronyms that people throw on these things over the years in order to market their own book, video, mm. you know, series. But again, the principles are always going to be the same. They're going to tie back to the same things. It needs to be spe specific to what we do so we have to be able to get to the end range with some control and um, but we've also got to be able to do it dynamically it's got to happen fast so mm -hmm. we need to be developing our flexibility so that we can control the end range and um, the generally speaking the passive end range will be greater than the active end range that you can get to um and you know so you, you often need to leave room in the system by increasing one to leave space for the other um but again, if you don't need to be able to put your foot out, head height, hold it there in slow motion and turn in a circle because, well, you know, your your focus isn't on top level pattern, well then, okay, maybe you spend less of your time on developing that end range control and more of your time on some other aspect of your training, I guess. Hmm. So um, we, we have a, a little bit of a request for... Um, uh, around a challenge for learning the patterns uh, in order to achieve black belt and uh, prepare for sparring tougher opponents. So I don't actually remember what you gave as the, the, the short tip on this one. Yeah, well, in short, you don't need to be a black belt to compete or to well, at least spar with high level guys who are black yeah. belt. You can go find them out and seek them out to train with them and use them as training patterns. I guess if the goal is a separate goal to become a black belt, then patterns is very, very important and it's something that you need to train. So I think um, it, the, the principles are, are quite simple for patterns. You learn what you need to do, you try to apply it, then you get some feedback. So usually that's from your coach. If you don't have a coach, maybe you can send a video to somebody who's more knowledgeable and you see what needs to be adjusted and you go again. So it's like sparring and patterns are quite different and we talk about this often, that they're different types of training required where it's a, it's a bit more direct with patterns mm -hmm. where 
okay, this is how it should be, and now you got to perform and maybe do the reps and things like that, where sparring is a little bit more free-flowing and a little bit more chaotic, so there's no actual set system. There's some mm. obviously good principles and good techniques that require um, a good solid foundation in your game, but generally, there, as they say, there, there's many ways to skin the cat, and that's not really the case in patterns. I think one of the things that people can do just as a mental kind of compartmentalization thing is look at a black belt grading or the learning of patterns as like going to school, doing a test, but someone's giving you the exam paper. So yeah. you already know what you're going to be asked. You know, there's, there's a load of resources to help you to learn it. You can look at where your challenges are. So if it's flexibility in relation to pattern, if it's rhythm, um, if it's timing, if it's, you know, whatever it happens to be you can start to put a little bit of programming in place to help you overcome those challenges but you know what the test is the test is can you perform that pattern you know under a certain amount of stress but can you perform it competently as it's described in the encyclopedia so that that's kind of what we're looking at whereas sparring no one can really tell you what the test is until they know who your opponent is so you're and then even at that if you compete yeah. against the same person 10 times it's never going to be the exact same fight so it's it's a completely different way of learning yeah. and training then as a result which in its own way is freeing, but because you can decide what you want to improve, what you want to try and so on, but it's also far less uh, definitive. So you can't be sure you've got better until you actually put it into mm -hmm. practice and you test it against live opponents. So uh, you know there, there's a slightly different mentality required to improve in each one. But if you do think in terms of the preparation for the black belt around it as a solvable puzzle, it's something that you can decide, you know, you can set your goals for, you can solve the puzzle of achieving a black belt. You know what's required of you in most of the disciplines. For me, going for like any black belt grading, the, the most nerve wracking part was always the self-defense and the breaking because in the self-defense, something can always go wrong. You know, you can, you can end up being asked or, you know, challenged to do something that you've just, and you blank on it or you've never prepared it or it's unusual or different in some way. Um, and the breaking, you know anyone who's ever hit boards will tell you sometimes they just don't break but i it never felt like you weren't in control of whether you did your pattern or not that for me so i would i would split the two a little bit and i think follow your advice on the first one is you know be don't you know don't be afraid to improve your sparring by challenging yourself and working with people who are better than you that's definitely the place to be definitely. and just don't carry an ego into the into the training because you know there's there's nothing worse than you know as someone who is more experienced or more competent sparring with someone who has ego on the line and has something to prove and is afraid to to lose to learn you don't want to train like that so as long as you can go into that with something to learn something to try and no ego about the result i think it'll be uh it'll be positive for you yeah that's a great point because to build that confidence you're going to have to be able to test yourself against higher level guys and if you go in there with that attitude of maybe like a defeatist attitude of this is not so well, maybe I'm just going to spar with the guys who I'm better than that, and then you're not going to improve. So you have to approach it with the correct mentality. I think so. So the next little question we had was around uh, just a, a simple uh, one kick, but I think you, you saw these as well coming in with 540, 720 and so on. But, yeah. but in general, how to improve a 360 kick and... Um, you know, I think you gave the the advice as well of keeping the feet fl close to the floor, and with anything where it's a with where it's a spinning technique, I think that's going to be you know important. Keeping your balance, keeping those feet low, will increase the speed as well. 
but it's positioning the body over the pivoting foot is going to be a huge thing in any of the spins and um, if your head is falling off the line you're going to set your whole pivot on an angle and you're going to you you know you're not going to stay on that line if your head travels forward over your standing foot you're going to end up kind of throwing yourself forward into it throwing yourself at the floor so it really is about picking that right uh, amount of lean and keeping your lean directly back from your opponent as you go uh, and add the foot low um, but you can definitely there's so many good videos on just this thing because yeah. it's not just taekwondo it, uh, it it's not just itf it's wt it's kickboxers it's trickers it's you know xma it's it's all everybody has a version of that kick yeah and it's the context is important here as well are you talking sparring are you talking about just to throw the kick to look cool is it whatever you know so more technical there's there's needs a bit of context there i guess but um, as, it, as it relates to sparring, obviously it's not something we see so often and that's probably yeah. one of the reasons because it takes a, that little bit extra time to get there. So you probably have some, especially in our system where you're not gaining any more points for this technique, um, it, it's, it's unnecessary, I guess, to take that risk and to uh, go with something like this when you, you're not getting a return. Sure. So a simple uh, question that comes up over and over and over again. Uh, your opinion on adding full hand techniques into ITF sparring and uh, in ITF besides straight and back fist punches, is there any other valid hand technique in sparring? And we do get asked this one quite a bit for some reason. Yeah, so it, it's one of these ones that's a little bit of a gray area and we, we tried to look up the rules a little bit earlier and we couldn't find the exact one, but there's nothing to say that if a, te- if a hand technique is under control that it's illegal. So mm. any hand technique which ha- has good control about it and is delivered in the correct manner to the correct area, then technically that should be a legal technique. So the the scoring allows for one point for any legal hand technique arriving on a scoring area. So what makes a technique illegal is that it's delivered with excessive force, it's delivered with an incorrect tool, so you can't land it with your forearm, your elbow, etc. Uh, it must be with the part of the glove that's you know and nowadays the gloves are marked with the white area so that'll prohibit some techniques you know they're open open a fist is you know is not something that we can do anymore so the the scoring area is marked on the glove so it does it's not every hand technique that exists you know mm-hmm. uh, but for all functional intents and purposes you know what do we want to throw in sparring you know straight shots a hook and uppercut a back fist you know that that that's pretty much it um mm-hmm. you know and and all spinning of those spinning backfist actually is something that isn't um yeah allowed, so yeah that's yeah 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 and uh but but you know in general it, it's there it, it's fairly permissive as a rule set and it's the same with the feet i mean you know is a twisting kick allowed absolutely yeah it, it sure is i mean if you can land one more power to you um uh, jump twist you know whatever it is as long as it's landing with the foot pad or the sole of your foot on the target and it lands on a legal target with the correct amount of force it's fine and mm-hmm. so think don't just i suppose the limiter is what works rather than uh you know the, what can you pull out of the encyclopedia or what's in your imagination of the technique um you know i remember years ago as a kid we were debating oh but how many points do you get if you throw a twin foot front kick the answer is you don't throw a twin foot front kick, you know. But the, you know, the the reason is there. It's 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 just a case of it's not effective because of the context of the, uh, you know, the, the match, not because the rules say you can't, you know. So yes, you can do it. That's it. 
the, the game dictates what we do and what we do efficiently yeah. so as time goes on people will figure out the most efficient ways to score and to win the game of sparring so that that's usually what comes out um, and we can see that especially with the stance that we have which is not as full facing as the likes of boxing and muay thai and things like that where have yeah. they have a little bit more of flexibility with the hand techniques and that that is also one of the things that kind of holds us back because we don't have the the transition between stances as effectively because of all the kicking techniques for sure yeah yeah it, it just defines what we can really do um a general question from uh one of our uh, subscribers from malaysia just in terms of tips for sparring um so i mean there's there's plenty that you can give uh where's a nice place to start yeah i think a, a very simple place would be to spar more would be a great place to start and if you could do so against um opponents that may be a little bit better than you but at the same time you can also work with people who are at a similar level so um ideally you want to have three types of opponents you want to have somebody who's not as um so basically you want to have somebody on your level somebody who's not on your level just below than you and then somebody who's a bit more advanced than you and if you can play between the three of those you'll be able to uh come up with a, a nice that's um that's a good place to start maybe just finding people who are at a good level that will test you and challenge you and spam more often yeah and i suppose the the whole thing there is by having those people whether it's because that's the level of sparring ability they have or because you design your exercises to be representative in that way you know you can disadvantage somebody to give you that feeling of being uh you know better in a particular scenario than they are uh, and disadvantage yourself you know going against somebody that's on a similar level to you to make it more challenging for yourself i mean that can be done as well so just a little bit of imagination around what you do with your sparring partners but i think the, the fundamental and most important thing as you were saying is spar more you know and, and make it make the sparring as realistic as possible don't do, don't rely on pad work and drill uh, and put yourself in realistic sparring scenarios or representative sparring scenarios yeah and i think that just on that as well it's because of things like mma and box contact people you hear people say oh you shouldn't spar so often you shouldn't spar all the time but that that's a different sport for us the semi-contact there there's very very limited um amount of injuries and knocks and um so you can actually sport you can spar sorry more often in our sport um, so we should be able to take advantage of that and to um, to use more representative sparring as opposed to doing the isolation things that don't actually help us with sparring. Sure. And I mean, there, there was another question of how to improve with just a punching bag at home. And I mean, that links to it as well, where, you know, if it's what you've got, it's what you've got. Work with it and you get the best out of it that you can. But it really is a conditioning tool uh you know uh there's a certain amount of accuracy involved you know but it's limited um and it doesn't move like a human being it doesn't force you to make decisions as a human being it doesn't attack you it, it is what it is and if it's what you have and it's all you've access to i think the answer is you use it um and then the best that you can do to make uh the punch bag more effective for you is your own imagination so if you can if you can put yourself into the mindset and into the kind of visual space that you're in when you're sparring, you might get a little bit more out of it, but that's mental rehearsal and mental training more so than anything else. And use it as that conditioning tool that it is and you know, give yourself some tough rounds on it 
uh, you know, and you can set yourself explosive repeats and you can do things like that on the on the pad that or on the bag that will be helpful to you. But it's not an opponent. And definitely. Yeah, and we, we actually have it we have a video done on this as well, so maybe we link it up in the top corner here for everybody to see. Um, but it, it hits those points that we just talked about where it's mostly for conditioning or if you're just learning a brand new technique from scratch and it's at the very beginning uh, phase of you just learning the, the technical aspects of it, yeah. then maybe it can be worthwhile. But otherwise, it's as you say, it's more of a conditioning tool and uh, you, need, you need a real live opponent that you can react to if you want to make the most of your sparring and to be uh, at that top level. For sure. I think the um, the next question kind of relates to the same thing. I don't have a spying partner. How do I improve spying in this lockdown? And there are so many countries that are still finding themselves in that exact same situation. Um, and we've kind of already talked yeah. a little bit about that mental rehearsal. Um, a little bit, you know, maybe it's worth talking about the, the bit that we, we decided we'd do, which is, you know, uh, pick a couple of matches or a, a fight or a competitor and you know spend a couple of days you know doing a bit of research and sit down and talk about it and you know obviously we've decided to put that on YouTube for people but it is genuinely helpful in terms of improving your brain game as far as the, the sparring goes mm. yeah that's we, we've spoken about this and um, it's something that for myself and yourself it's been very very valuable because we were able to keep our sparring brain as such and just keep up up to scratch with the whole game of it and still learning some good solid principles and things like that so yeah if anybody's looking to improve their sparring during lockdown look at those physical things we talked about maybe so that those explosive repeats and conditioning on the bag and then every friday tune into our youtube and you'll see a video that will help your understanding of the game a little bit more yeah and i think the understanding part of it is something that you can you can do a little bit you, you can do your planning, but obviously you want to get back into your training and everything as well. Um, you know, the, the, the worst part about, about watching videos and things like that in, in the lockdown is that you don't actually get to go and practice then. Yeah. So any time you see something and you really like it, you'll want to go and practice immediately. And obviously that's not uh, practical at the moment. Yeah. But I mean, there's, there is still, from the point of view of your own ability to execute skills, you know, uh, developing that end range leg control uh you know the push off from your standing leg uh a lot of your leg strength your leg ability your ability to kick can be done you know with the pad you can you can build the you can build the engine you can build the capacity you know you can add techniques at that stage they won't work when you jump in and you want to apply them straight away you know you need the the context for that but at least if the capacity to throw the shot is there that's something you know so that would be the kind of Look, if you're going to do something and you're you're stuck and you're on your own, that's still something that you can do. There was a question uh, around uh, can keeping constant pressure be effect an effective tactic in ITF, just like it is in MMA, and I quite like that one. Yeah, like there's some ITF fighters who do this really well. Um, again, it depends on your style and how you approach it. Having that bigger ring and the idea of warnings as well means that we can do it and it's possible and quite effectively if you can do it correctly and um, it's maybe not something that we see so much i think personally it's just the speed of our sport is so quick that it's very difficult to pin somebody down and and not because we don't have the ropes and a set area that we have to stay inside it can be very difficult to almost pin somebody because they can just exit, take that one meter back in, and then that gives them space to readjust and reset. 
maybe back to the center or in more open space but um, certainly it's an effective tool if you can be able to build those um, warnings on the exits in particular yeah, yeah, yeah. and if you can squeeze that space um, so the more you can squeeze that space you'd probably be at an advantage yeah, I think you kind of have to reimagine pressure. You know, it's not about staying all over your opponent all the time because they can always choose to mm. slow the match down by, as you said, by falling, by having an exit, uh, by clinching. Uh, all of those bring in our referees and our referees then have to break the match. They have to issue a warning. It buys three or four seconds of a break, maybe more, and you're back into it again. So it's very hard to maintain consistent pressure in that sense. But momentum is a huge mental pressure that we can build. And I think that that's a very effective strategy in ITF. So when we discussed it, when we were talking about the blitz and, you know, where a blitz can be a score, you can move your opponent to the edge of the ring, you know, and potentially they could travel and concede a warning. So you have potentially a score, a partial score in the warning and ring position as an advantage. And when that starts to build up and you have that happen, maybe two or three scores without an answer, whatever, the momentum of that can build a mental pressure. And that is something that we see the whole time, that competitors don't come back from that mental pressure very well. Mm. So, and I, I think actually another point on that as well is when, when you think of it like MMA, a lot of time you'll see people with that stance of full facing like we mentioned earlier and, and the hands high approach. Yeah. And that's that's probably not something that's realistic. You know, range of dynamic kicks in particular that can fit through that guard and, and to hit you when you have that big open target it's not as um it's not as applicable as such and also when you're in that more side facing stance your mobility is not the same as if you sure. if you're full facing so it's hard to build that forward pressure especially if there's some outlets there that people can get out to open space so leaving sparring for just a moment uh we had a question that came through on facebook around how do you overcome performance anxiety when practicing patterns in front of a group? And, you know, when, when you drop the word anxiety in it, 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 it you know, it, that word on its own carries so many connotations and, you know, it's such a serious issue when people suffer from anxiety. But uh, if we take it on its more limited level as in, you know, anxious, feeling nervous, feeling not confident, feeling, you know, not quite ready for what's being demanded of you, pull forward in front of the group, show us your pattern. Um, you had a couple of tips uh, that were uh, given to that particular person on Facebook. So do you want to shout those out? Yeah, so like first off, just approaching the, the term anxiety, that, that's something that means you're not really fully present. So being anxious means you're either in the past or you're in the future. So you're not actually yeah. in this current moment in time. And that's something that's quite actually important with patterns because and from my own personal experience, there's been times where you actually might maybe forget the pattern because you're you're thinking of the next movement or you're thinking of something else, whatever, you get distracted. So you, you need to be really present and well-performing patterns in particular. And, and that's something that will put you off on the right foot immediately. Mm. Then there's some other points as well, of course, that you got to remember, like you performing a pattern in front of people. It's, it's not the end of the world if you make mistakes. There's... There's been people who, who messed it up before you and there will be people who mess it up after you. So you got to remember, like, this is not a life or death. It's, um, it's not so serious. If you make a mistake, so be it and try again and you learn from that. Most of the time that this situation is just from people not having enough practice. Yeah. Um, so the, the more comfortable you are with the pattern, the more comfortable you will be to perform it. 
So um, I think it's a good place to start, just getting comfortable with the movements, first of all, and to build that confidence. And then after a while, you'll be able to perform it in front of people, and you'll be actually happy to do so um, when when you feel confident in performing. And I think there's a slightly different thing that happens there as well, where... as you said it's around the context of it so if i'm being asked to perform a pattern to demonstrate it because the perception is my demonstration will be good well i'm maybe i'm not so anxious at that stage if i'm asked to perform it because someone has seen a mistake and they want to expose the mistake to the whole group that's not such a good feeling i mean that's not going to feel good if it's a case of it's a check for learning let's see if you can do it under pressure well as long as that's been done at the appropriate time that can be really beneficial because it gives me an opportunity to test my ability to perform under pressure. So the context is very relevant as well. So mm. for me, it's, it's a case of getting up in front of a group of people can be like empowering, it can be encouraging, it can be, as I said, it can cause anxiety and stress. Um, and it, it really does depend on where you're at with that pattern, with that group of people, what they mean to you, what's being expected of you. So there's, there's a lot of layers to it. So, I mean, if I'm going to be called out to perform a pattern in front of a group of people, I would hope it's for my benefit. I would hope that the group of people are there to support and encourage me and to help me to improve and that this isn't a target shoot. <laughs> so if I, I'm going to be much more comfortable doing that. And of course, you bring it back to the, you know, performing in, in front of an audience is still one of the things that is ranked by most people as their number one fear you know, if, if, if you ask people their fears, their phobias, that always comes up very highly. Um, and, it, you know, it's usually dependent on your confidence in that particular element. So if I have to get up in front of this audience and sing, it's a problem. If I have to get up and do a pattern, it's probably not a problem, you know, but it, it, it just depends. Yeah, either way, though, it's, it's a good opportunity for you, especially, as you said, if that's a safe environment, that's a good opportunity for you to maybe push your boundaries a little bit to expose yourself to that pressure it's it's a good pressure you know it's yeah. not something that's going to harm you and, and there's valuable lessons to be taken that not only for taekwondo performance but also in life just being able to put yourself in front of groups of people mm. and to do certain tasks so I, I, I would just flip my mindset a little bit on that and, and see it as a, a great opportunity for a, a good opportunity as a life lesson yeah i mean fundamentally it is why we compete yeah. you know it, it adds that level of stress and pressure to see is it does does what I'm training still work under slightly more stressed conditions? And brings us on to our last question for today, which is how practical do you think Taekwondo is for self-defense? Get a lot of people telling me it's useless in a self-defense situation, and what do you think? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. Um, so I think that maybe Taekwondo has a bad rap in the general martial arts and we, we don't get enough recognition, but I do think there's a lot of value to be taken from it in particular maybe in just when you look at the sparring there's a lot of things that translate so there's fantastic distance management so people that train taekwondo uh, generally have a good understanding of range and distance Um, and and in particular because we kick a little bit more and in more dynamic ranges with different varies of kicks we can understand that range even better than somebody for example who may be a boxer so although they might be really good at that medium and close range, the further out range is somewhere where they might not really fully understand. So that's maybe somewhere where you would have an advantage. And if you just like we spoke about in the last question, 
if you're used to competing and put yourself in a in a physical combat situation, that's not very comfortable for most people. Um, sure. So when it comes to self-defense, just by you being used to that a little bit more than the average person in the population, that's going to be a good place to start from, and um, especially in self-defense. Now, when you talk about self-defense, usually it's not somebody who isn't so confident in their own abilities who will attack you. It's usually somebody who's done it before and um, things like that. So generally they will probably have a little bit of experience themselves also but i think that um when, when you compare it to the average population anybody who studies any form of martial art is um is is a good place to begin yeah and i think there's so many ways you look at self-defense but you know from my perspective it also depends on what is your reason for training like i mean for me that's the fundamental um and i mean the question has been asked before and I'm, i've been you know very outspoken on this in, in various groups but like I, my reason for doing taekwondo was absolutely nothing to do with self-defense and very little of my training and anything that i've ever done for myself it's not really focused on that as an outcome um it, for me it just doesn't matter and i you could look at that as being a, an element of just privilege it's like i, I happen yeah. to be lucky enough to live in nice neighborhoods where the chances of me being attacked by someone are very slim i don't drink i don't socialize in bars and nightclubs and i don't hang around town at 3 30 in the morning so I don't tend to encounter those situations very often. And when I go on holidays, I try not to pick places where, you know, the murder rate is so high that, you know, it's just one of those things. Call it privilege. Yeah. What I do think, though, on a very, very, and you've kind of addressed this on a fundamental level is um, for young kids growing up in society, for people being in schools and, um, you know, developing a certain amount of confidence around being competent in something and take one is perfectly fine in that example is one of the things that does protect you or insulate you somewhat from being singled out. So, I mean, if you have a way of relating to people, if you have confidence around something because you've committed to it and you're good at it, if your socialization skills are improving because you're involved in this, if you enter competition, you're used to experiencing stress and pressure and performing under that. I think all of those things are helpful and conducive against the baseline. Like, so it's better than being baseline, I've done no preparation at all. If you want to ask, hey, are you better off, if your interest is improving your ability to defend yourself, are you better off doing Spear or Krav Maga or a specifically tailored self-defense program where you're gonna spend all of your time learning skills and pressure testing them? Well, it's just a lot of specificity. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we're not spending all of our time learning to defend ourselves. Well, some take one to, uh, you know, uh, instructors and coaches may have that focus. But certainly for me, you are not spending an awful lot of the time training in Taekwondo if you're training with me as, you know, focusing on defending yourself, you know, explicitly. And so is there a better choice for you? Yeah, probably. Um, but if you're interested in uh, a martial art more generally, if you're interested certainly in the sports side of things, it changes the, you know, the, the game completely. Mm, but I think as well, in, in terms of the sport of Taekwondo, it's massive because you kind of touched on it there, the whole idea of confidence that anybody who competes for a certain amount of time will actually build a, a good level of confidence and self-esteem and you see that in not only like when it comes to taekwondo and training and being in the dojang but when they walk down the street you'll see they'll be able to hold themselves with a little bit of confidence their posture will be decent and i think that there's actually a lot of research done on people who do get attacked and need to use self-defense it's usually somebody who has that like slouch posture they don't look so confident in themselves so i think even that alone is a, is a good prerequisite before it even gets to the self-defense stage just being having 
for yourself in a decent manner is actually a great start when it comes to self-defense. Yeah, for Not sure. To defend yourself is number one self-defense, obviously. So if that's it. If you can look after that, you're in a great place. Yeah, but I mean, jump right back to that one. And, uh, you know, if you take the, the underlying philosophy of the tenets of Taekwondo, like, I mean, what we're basically looking to do is bring through, a, a, you know, a, a type of person who is, you know, better to relate to because they are courteous. They're not the, they're not the kinds of people who are starting fights, initiating trouble, getting themselves in situations where they're likely to end up having to defend themselves for the most part life throws these circumstances at us from time to time but you know so much of it is avoidable and yeah. you know situational awareness you know being of a better kind of having better manners having you know not being the instigator is a big part of of the self-defense too and i think that's one of the things where taekwondo is you know is reasonably good and i think one of the more dangerous things is like someone coming out in their third year in college and they they kind of they know enough to be dangerous because they haven't learned how to really critically analyze what they don't know. Uh, sometimes that's the case. And I think that could be one of the things with Taekwondo as well. The, the kind of the cautionary tale is don't assume that you can win a fight because you've been winning some Taekwondo spars. You know, it's, it's not the same, it's not the same thing at all. Yeah. And I think as well that people that train in this environment, they don't go looking for fights because they, they kind of have that assuredness within them already that, okay, I've like, I, I experienced this pretty frequently in, in terms of the nerves and the, the idea of physical combat with another person. So they don't actively go looking for this then as a result because yeah. it, it, it's something that we're, we almost um, were attuned to, I guess. And so it's not something that you will actively go looking for. That's it. We can use that question as our question of the day. So in the comment box below, if you think that Taekwondo is a useful um, martial art for self-defense, throw a thumbs up in the comment box. And if you don't think it's so, maybe you can throw a thumbs down in the comment box and feel free to add your two cents on that as well. And um, it'll be a good, interesting conversation for people in the comments. Try to stay respectful, please, and uh, get your opinion out there. So I think that was the last of the questions that we had for for this week. But certainly, like really, really interesting to see what people were curious about, and uh, really good to take a bit, a little bit more time to dig into some of the questions. Where you know, a couple of a couple of sentences on Instagram didn't really uh, probably scratch the itch, and uh, it was something to dig into a bit more. Um, so it was, I think it's something we'll definitely do again. Definitely, yeah. So maybe we'll keep this going as well. So we'll put it up on our Instagram feed. So keep an eye on that on the story feature that if we're ever putting up the questions, maybe if you have a question you want to answer, drop it in there and hopefully we'll get to it, answer it in quick form on Instagram stories and then we'll throw it in here and give you a little bit more context and a little bit more of an in-depth answer. Absolutely. So until Friday where we get to uh, you know sit down and chat again in the usual format, uh, say goodbye to everybody for now. And again, if you have a question that's burning, don't wait for the questions to come up. Do send it through to us. And again, remember, do please interact with this, like, subscribe, and uh, you know, tell us what you do or don't like in the comments. And uh, looking forward to next week.